All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 24. That is Mark 11, 20 through 24. Um, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, obviously, and, and this morning we come to our Lord Jesus' teaching on faith and prayer. Uh, in the text before us, our Lord Jesus teaches us of the necessity of having faith in God, having faith that God is able to do anything, having faith that he hears us when we pray, faith that he desires to do good things and give good gifts to us, uh, faith that he loves to execute his holy will through prayer. In our text, our Lord reminds us uh, that we are to have faith in God, and from that faith we are to pray. Uh, simply put, a big takeaway from this text is we are to pray in faith. And when we pray in faith, we will have our requests. That's the great takeaway here. We are to have faith in God, and we are to pray in that faith. And when we do, when we pray in faith, having no doubts, we will have our requests. Now, I can see some of your faces, and as many of you can already guess, I will have to make some clarifications about this text. Uh, some of you are grinning, right? We're, we're not charismatics. We, we reject the prosperity gospel here. That is no gospel at all. So I'm going to have to make some clarifications, um, and, and a rather large portion of this sermon will be looking at other texts of Scripture that give us caveats concerning prayer and, and, and instruct us further in prayer. Uh, just right off the rip, let me say this. Jesus is not telling us in this text that whatever we ask for, with no exceptions whatsoever, will certainly be given to us if we just believe hard enough. That's not what this text is saying. Uh, so again, I'm going to have to spend some time making clarifications so we interpret Christ's words in Mark accurately. Um, but even though that must be done, I, I don't want us to lose sight of what this text actually teaches us. Um, I've noticed something whenever, you, whenever uh, Reformed people preach sometimes. Um, I, I don't want us to be experts in what the text is not saying. Right? You ever heard that sermon? Well, the text clearly isn't saying this. Well, great, but what is it saying then? Please, someone tell me. Right? I don't want us to be experts in what the text is not saying. Rather, I want us to be experts in what Jesus is saying here. And what our Lord teaches us in our passage today is this. God can do anything. So we are to have faith in him. And praying in faith, we can be certain that our gracious Heavenly Father will hear our prayers and help us. And by God's grace, I think this text will encourage us all to go to prayer with more zeal than we have in the past. And it will also encourage us as we remember that our God is able and actually delights in answering our prayers. So with that said, now if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, 
Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you now, recognizing our weakness and our neediness, but also with full knowledge that you hear us for the sake of your only Son, Jesus. And so we ask humbly but boldly that you would help us today as we sit under the ministry of your word. Open our minds to understand the scriptures, open our hearts to receive it, and mold and bend our wills to live, think, and act according to the word of God. Transform us today by the power of your Holy Spirit, working through the word that he inspired to be written. Have mercy on us, we pray. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, You'll remember, or at least you'll pretend to, uh, you'll remember from two weeks ago that we read about how our Lord Jesus cursed the fig tree. Um, and and the, the fig tree that he cursed was symbolic of Israel, right? How the nation had the leaves of religion but had no true spiritual fruit of religion. And because of that, Israel was under the curse of God. Right? Israel was apostate. And this was evidenced most explicitly in, in the national rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They rejected the Messiah when he came to them. And so, because of their apostasy, because they rejected Christ, only a curse remained upon that nation in that day. And then you'll remember how last week we saw our Lord cleansing the temple. Right? He went into the temple, he saw the false religion there, how there was no true worship going on, how God's temple and his worship was being profaned, that God's name was on the lips of the worshipers, but their hearts were far from him, and then he cleaned house. Right? He flipped the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, scattered the money, drove them out of the temple, and in doing so, Jesus was acting out the symbolic cursing of the fig tree the temple would be destroyed. The temple would be flipped upside down, as it were, not one stone left on top of another, as he's going to say in Mark chapter 13. Jesus' actions in the temple and in the cursing of the fig tree was declaring that God was finished with the temple and God was finished with this apostate Jewish religion. And now, in the first two verses of our text this morning, we come to the conclusion of the fig tree. And the lesson is the same. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. It's now Tuesday morning of Passion Week. And on this morning, our Lord and his disciples passed by the same tree that Jesus had cursed on Monday morning, right? just the morning before. And the text says it was withered away to its roots, completely dead. Right? Now the withering, uh, whatever we look at Matthew's version of events in Matthew 21, which by the way, Matthew was taking it topically, not chronologically, Uh, We we see that the withering probably began the moment that our Lord cursed the tree. But according to Mark, the disciples did not see it until the next day. Uh, But now they see the result of the curse of Christ very clearly. The fig tree is completely dead. Right? It's dried and shriveled up. It's withered right down to the roots. Our Lord had said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And so it was. And... This is a foreshadowing of what was to come upon wicked Israel, judgment and destruction. And why? Again, as I've said for the last two weeks, because their religion was only external, because they had no love for God, because they rejected our Lord Jesus Christ. And just a brief note before we go any further, 
I, I must say this. This is this, the implication of the text. I want to put this before you again. This cursing is what happens to all who do not have true religion. All who do not have true faith. This cursing of the fig tree is symbolic. This is what will happen on a cosmic, eternal scale to every single person who does not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. This is what will happen to all religious hypocrites who profess to know God, but in reality do not possess true faith that results in fruit-bearing. Only a curse will remain. Only an eternal curse of damnation awaits those who refuse Christ, those who don't come to know Him, or those who falsely profess His name. But verse 20 tells us that the fig tree, having been cursed by the Lord Jesus, is completely dead. And bear with me, this will all come together. This seems to shock Peter, doesn't it? Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, says this, rather the text, verse 21, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Peter remembered how Jesus cursed the tree on the previous morning, and now Peter seems shocked that the tree's dead. In reality, he shouldn't have been shocked, should have he? He shouldn't have been. Jesus' word is law, right? What he says will happen will happen, period. He should not have been surprised. But our Lord Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, now decides to use Peter's astonishment that his word came to pass and that the fig tree died He decides to use Peter's astonishment to lead into a teaching about faith and prayer, right? So just real quick, some of you uh, maybe are thinking, why why didn't you preach verse 20 and 21 uh, with the cleansing of the temple, right? That's how many people decide to use it. Other people preach verses 20 and 21 completely by itself. The conclusion to the fig tree episode, they'll just reiterate, right, what the previous texts have said. Uh, Why am I including it here with Jesus' teaching on prayer? Let me explain how I think. This, this took me a while to see this week, how verses 20 and 21 connect to what follows. Right, let, me, let me explain to you. Um, our Lord, with regard to his human nature, right? Again, God, man, truly God, truly man. With regard to his human nature, he performed this miracle by faith. Right, maybe that makes some of you uncomfortable, but yes, Jesus Christ had to exercise faith. He was a man. In his human nature, he had to believe. He knew that it was the will of God for him to curse this tree as a prophetic example and witness. And so in faith, our Lord cursed the tree. And having cursed the tree in faith, what happened? It died. And Peter was astonished at this. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus seems to be pretty mellow, right? At least that's how I read the text. Peter is shocked, and Jesus says, have faith in God. (laughs) Right? Jesus is not shocked at what happened. Why? Because Jesus believed. Jesus had perfect faith with regard to his human nature. He perfectly believed. He was the perfect man after all. And now Jesus uses this as a way to introduce the topic of faith. And speaking of faith naturally leads him to give an application concerning prayer, how faith relates to prayer. Now other people, you can read, other, you can read commentaries and other people will make different connections than what I'm proposing to you, but I think this is the clearest and simplest one and the simplest answer is usually the most correct one. Um, So Jesus now begins to teach on faith, and his teaching on faith is going to lead him to apply it to prayer. Now, uh, let me read the rest of the text to you again, verses 22 through 24, uh, and then we're going to pause 
And I'm going to make some clarifications before we continue through our text verse by verse. So let's, let's read it again. Verse 22, And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. These three verses are an absolute favorite of false teachers. Particularly those false teachers that are in the what's called the word of faith movement or prosperity gospel movement. You guys have heard of this, at least most of us have. Uh, the, the name it and claim it teaching, or as I like to affectionately refer to it, the blab it and grab it movement, right? Or like drawing like circle prayers. You guys have heard of this? Like you, you draw a circle around something and you pray about it or you walk around something that you want. Like you go to the car lot and you walk in a circle around it and pray, right? And you'll get it, right? This is all over TBN, right? Uh, is it Channel 2 still? Daystar? Don't watch it. Daystar. More like, more like two different channels. Well, they're both the devil. Don't, don't watch Daystar or, or TBN. Uh, Daystar, more like son of the morning, the devil, right? Don't, don't, don't watch that stuff. Um, but again, this teaching even shows up in lesser forms in many popular teachers who aren't necessarily completely associated with the charismatic movement. Like Stephen Furtick is technically a Southern Baptist, but he's part of this nonsense, this name it and claim it prosperity trash. But basically what happens is this, and forgive me if I get heated, no, this bad theology hurts people. Bad theology hurts people. You should be mad. Jesus was angry and flipped tables over false doctrine and irreverence. We should get mad about things too. But basically what happens is they'll take this text and others like it where our Lord is teaching on faith and prayer and they'll, and they'll say this, our Lord is giving you a blank check here. You can ask for anything that you want. Right? And, and if you just believe enough and don't doubt, you will receive literally anything that you ask for. And they leave no room for the will of God or praying according to God's will. They leave no room for the secret will of God that we can't know what he actually wants to affect in his world. They leave no room for anything else. And they just simply take this text as an open-ended offer. And they tell you that if you just believe enough that you can have whatever you want from God. And basically what they're doing here is they turn God into an errand boy. As R.C. Sproul said, they turn God into a cosmic bellhop who's here to do whatever you will him to do. If you just believe hard enough, God will do your will. And here's the kicker. If you don't get what you asked for, it's because you don't believe enough. Jesus told you that you can have whatever you want if you just believe. So if you don't have it, then it's your fault because you lack faith. Brothers and sisters, this doctrine is from the pit of hell. It is a lie. And it hurts people. Again, bad theology hurts people. Imagine that you believe this heresy. That's what it is. Imagine you believe this heresy and so you pray that your aunt would be healed of cancer. And then she dies. What does that mean? It's your fault. If you would have believed more, she would live. According to these false teachers, it's your fault. Or if you're poor, same thing applies. Right? 
You're poor. Why? Because you don't believe enough when you pray that God would help you financially. That's why you're poor. Has nothing to do with the sovereignty of God or as Hannah said in her prayer. I believe it's in 1 Samuel that God makes the rich and God makes others poor. No, nothing to do with that. It's you don't believe enough. And that's why you don't have money. Really, it applies to everything according to these heretics. And if someone is having a tough time or a hard go in life or, or is sick or doesn't have their prayers answered, it's because they lack faith. That's what people like Benny Hinn will tell crippled people. You'd get out of that wheelchair if you just believe enough. And it hurts people. It's not true. Our Lord is not writing us a blank check in these verses. It's not what he's doing. Now let's, let's be clear about something, right? Because we want to be fair. I want to be fair. If this text was the only text in the Bible about prayer, then indeed it would seem that Jesus is telling us that we can have whatever we want if we just believe enough and ask. If this was the only passage that we had, it would seem that that's what's being taught, wouldn't it? Um, But this isn't the only text we have about prayer, is it? It's not the only one. There are caveats and there are clarifications that Jesus assumes here. right? He and his disciples know this. So Jesus, when he speaks here, because he gives no caveats, assumes that his hearers are aware of them. Remember, just a quick thing, not every teaching of Christ or portion of Scripture is a dissertation of a doctrine. The Bible is not written that way. The Bible's not written systematically like our systematic theology textbooks are. That's not how it's written. So what we must do is look at this text in its immediate context and then in the larger context of the book it's written in, and then in the largest context of the whole Bible. And then we draw conclusions, right? You've heard this phrase, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Well, there's also tota scriptura, all of scripture. We look at all of scripture when we're deducing doctrines. And we remember that God's word harmonizes with itself. It does not contradict. So we take everything that God has to say on a certain topic and then we distill it down and 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 see what we're supposed to see then so so in light of that there are some texts that we need to keep in mind as we hear our lord's words here in mark chapter 11 and i have some texts i'm going to jump through a few write these down if you're a note taker write these down the first text is first john chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 let me read it to you john says this and this is the confidence that we have toward him That if we ask anything, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The Apostle John, who I might remind you, uh, was present when Jesus spoke these words in Mark. John was there. He reminds us that when we pray, we must pray according to the will of God. John understood. Jesus wasn't writing a blank check here. Right? Again, he was there when Jesus gave these words, and then in one of his letters he says, we must pray according to the will of God. That is, what, 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 what do we mean of pray, praying according to his will? We pray according to the promises, commands, and character of God. You see God promise you something in the word? Pray for it. He loves to keep his promises. Do you see something revealed about God's nature? Pray according to his nature. Right, His character, what is he like? What kind of stuff does he like to do? Pray for those things. Right, His commands, well, what are his commands? Implied in his commands is that you would obey them. Pray that he would help you to obey them. He gave you the command because he wants you to obey So pray. 
You get what I'm saying? His commands, his character, and his promises. That's what we're to pray according to. And where do we learn about those things? The Bible. This is where we see the revealed will of God is in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to pray effectively, we must know what we are to pray for. We must know our Bibles. So in other words, when we have biblical warrant to make a request of God, when we have, this is how Matthew Henry put it in his commentary, when we have biblical warrant, it's an important phrase, biblical warrant to make a request of God, then we know it is his will to grant the request, and we can know that we will have what we have asked for. Bottom line here, we are to pray according to the will of God. Another text we need to consider is James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Uh, the very tail end of verse 2 is where we're going to start. James says this, James 4, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is speaking of prayer here, and he mentions two reasons why people don't have God's blessing, why people don't have their prayers answered. First, some people do not pray. You have not because you ask not. You don't ask God for anything, so of course he's not going to answer your prayers because you've made no prayers. You've, you've made no requests, and so you have nothing. But second, when, when many do make requests of God, they do not ask for those things that God desires to give. Or they ask selfishly. They ask to spend it upon themselves. They ask for things only for the things that's going to make it life easier for them in an earthly way. And that's selfish. Their prayers of such people are not concerned about the glory of God or giving him praise and thanksgiving or the spread of his kingdom or for spiritual helps. And so God does not give them what they ask for. Such a person's prayer is only concerned with themselves. And so they can spend, or rather, so that they can spend what God gives on themselves and not in order to be a blessing to others or to do work for the kingdom. Again, such people are not praying according to the will of God. They're praying selfishly with a thought, without a thought toward the glory of God or the good of others or their own spiritual good. And so God doesn't answer their prayers. God is not primarily in the business of making our lives easier on the earth. So when we ask for selfish things, he says, no, it's not going to be good for you ultimately, so I'm not going to do it. Another text we should consider is John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. There we read our Lord Jesus himself saying, whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Some people like to twist this text like our passage in Mark. And, and they'll say, you know, if you just sign off in Jesus' name, right? Like signing off in the name of Jesus, amen, and now I'm going to get whatever I want. False. That's not what's going on here. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In my name means according to his will. According to what is consistent with his person and his teaching and his purposes and his desires for individuals and the world. That's what it means to pray in his name. So when we pray those prayers that are consistent with what we see and hear from Jesus in the word, then we are praying in his name. It's a lot more than just a phrase we put at the end of our prayers. And if we pray in his name, we can expect to have our prayers answered. A final text to consider is Mark chapter 13, verse 36 
And here we see that not even the perfect man who had perfect faith received a yes to all of his prayers. Mark 13, 36, and he, Jesus, said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He has faith. All things are possible for you. And then he makes his request, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Our Lord Jesus himself understood that the will of God is the most important thing in prayer. And so in his human nature, what does he do? He submits. With regard to his humanity, he submitted to the will of God in prayer. He made his request known. He had all faith that God was able, but ultimately he submitted his desire that he would be spared from death. He submitted his desire to the will of God, and God told him no. He told him no. And so Jesus went willingly to the cross according to the will of God in order to save us from our sins. Brothers and sisters, I hope that in light of the clear teaching of Scripture, you can see through the nonsensical twisting of the words of our Lord here in Mark's Gospel. If you can see through it, Jesus is not giving us a blank check here. Our prayers, if they are to be answered, are to be prayed according to the will of God. And the only kind of prayer, the only kind of prayer that we are to be absolutely rock-solidly certain that we will receive a yes to are those prayers that we know are according to the revealed will of God in Scripture. And every other kind of prayer where we're not so sure, and I'll address that in the application. What do you do whenever you're praying for something that's not, you don't know what God's will is. I'll address that later. But those prayers are to be submitted to the will of God, always. And if our prayers are always submitted to His will, then we know ultimately we'll have our requests. And that's because at root, that's what we want, is God's will to be done Because we know that he knows best. And so we have faith in him. We trust him. Now at this point, some will say, why pray then if it has to be according to God's will? Why should I pray then? And I respond, why do you not want God to do his will? Why not? Brothers and sisters, We need to check our hearts if the will of God is not what we want done the most. It's a dangerous place to be spiritually. We should want his will to be done. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and this may offend some of you, but but here we go. Any prayer that is not according to God's will or submitted to his will when you are not sure what his will is, any prayer that is not ultimately submitted to his will is an act of rebellion against him. And that's because you are assuming that you know better than God. And so you would prefer your will to be done over his. Or you're assuming that you can change his mind when he explicitly tells you in his word, I am not a man that I should lie, nor a son of man that I change my mind. All prayer is to be according to God's will in one way or another if it is to be true prayer and not an insult to God. We must pray according to his will. And when we do, we know that we will have what we've asked for. Now, one final word before we actually get back into our text here in Mark. And we're going to go through it rather quickly once we get back. I think personally that it's foolish to think that Jesus spoke these words in Mark to his disciples so that they could then pray for health, wealth, and other worldly comforts. 
And I say that for a couple of reasons. I think it's foolish if you think that's what's going on here. Uh, one, they never got those things. <laughs> like, ever. Like, hardly. Like, the best, the best I got, I can stay at Lydia's house for a while. She's rich. Right? Take a break here. Uh, that's about as good as it got. Their lives were hard and full of trials and trouble. So clearly, that's not what Jesus was telling them here, is that they could have health and wealth and everything else. A second reason I think it's foolish to think that that's why Jesus would give this promise is this. Christ gave this promise to his disciples with the understanding that they were going to have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. Primarily spiritual work. And they would have needs that needed met in order to do this work. Some of them would be temporal earthly needs, right? Like food. Like what does Paul tell Timothy? If we have food and clothing, let us be content with these things. They would need their most basic needs. And there is biblical warrant to pray for that. The Lord taught them how to pray, didn't he, Matthew 6? Give us this day our daily bread. We're allowed to ask for our needs. God will provide for our most basic needs. Right? Consider the sparrow, right? The lily of the field, all of that. We have biblical warrant to pray for those things. And they would have hardships that they were going to have to endure. They were going to need divine aid to sustain them. There would be obstacles in their paths as they preached the gospel and established the church. The task that Jesus was going to give them in the Great Commission was huge. Can can we agree? The task in the Great Commission was too much for them. I hope you say yes. Because Jesus has to ground the Great Commission with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Without the therefore, without Christ giving them strength and helping them, there's no way they could go and do this. He was going to give them a task that was too big for them. Twelve men were going to change the world? Get out of here. They're going to need divine aid. And so Jesus tells them to have faith in God and know that whatever they ask according to God's will would be granted. Why? So they could do the work he was going to commission them to do. So then in light of that, I think that the things Jesus has in mind here are primarily spiritual, but also include things like our most basic necessities, which, by the way, are way less than we think. Jesus isn't telling them to pray for easy lives, but he's telling them to pray for God's help so that they can glorify him, share the gospel well, live godly lives, and be instruments for God's glory. Those are the things they're supposed to pray for, by the way. So with those clarifications about prayer made, we now turn back to our text, and we find that it's actually a fairly simple and straightforward passage. Peter, on behalf of the disciples, has expressed amazement at the withering of the fig tree, and now Jesus replies and begins to teach them about faith. Verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Jesus begins with a command, have faith in God. Now, to be clear, and thank you to J.C. Ryle's commentary. You should read the old Anglican man. He was great as far as Anglicans go. Uh, he, was a, he was a good one. Uh, Jesus is not speaking of justifying faith in our text. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the faith that justifies. Now, all faith is trusting in God, but there are promises of faith that are diverse and even objects of faith in a lesser way that are diverse. Justifying faith is trusting particularly in the promise of God in Jesus Christ that our sins have been atoned for and that we have been declared righteous by God because of the merits and person of our Lord Jesus. That's justifying faith. 
Okay, justifying faith or saving faith is casting ourselves upon Christ for salvation. It's believing God's promise that we will be declared righteous in his sight and receive eternal Christ in and for the sake of Christ alone. But Jesus is not talking about that in our text. That's not what he's talking about. I think the context shows that since he's going to talk about prayer and moving mountains. He's not talking about justification here. Instead, our Lord is talking about faith in God in a more general way. Okay, he's talking about faith or trusting in God's power, wisdom, generosity, and goodness toward his people. Now, uh, now to be clear, this faith will accompany justifying faith, but it's not exactly the same thing. This faith is general confidence in God's power and goodness. And its special objects are the promises of God, the word of God, and the character of God. So just three things briefly about having faith, or what kind of faith, what this looks like, or, or to break it down more maybe. To have faith in God first in this context is to believe that God is able. It's to believe God is able to do anything. We need to get this, okay? It is to be absolutely certain in your heart that God's arm is not too short in order to reach you, nor is his arm too weak to help. To have faith is to believe that God is indeed God. Right? That he is God and that there's nothing that he cannot do. That there is no prayer according to his will that he cannot answer. That there is no problem that he cannot solve. That there's no difficulty that he cannot overcome. There's no enemy that he cannot thwart. To have faith in God is to believe first and foremost that he truly is the almighty God. If God wants it to be done, it is as good as done. We need only to believe. There's nothing he cannot do. He is, he's not just powerful, please hear me, right? He is power itself. He is power. He accomplishes all that he desires to do. He is God. And we'll all agree with that if we're taking a theology test, but we have to actually believe this. That he actually is able Second, to have faith in God is to believe that he is wise. That he's wise. That is, we are to trust that God is not just able to do what we've asked, but is wise to best accomplish what we've asked. That he knows how to do what we have asked in the best way possible. That is, according to his time, according to his plan, in the proper way, which might not be the way that we thought it should be done but that he is able and he is wise to pull things off in the best way. Do you believe that your God is smarter than you? I hope so, because I know you, <laughs> and we're all not that smart. Believe that he's wise, that he knows how best to do things. And since we believe that, is wise, we are, that he is wise, we are to trust that in due time, in his way, according to his timing and will, he will act in his power and be gracious to us. The third thing, to have faith in God means to believe that God is good. And from his goodness springs generosity to his people. Let me remind you of the words of our Lord in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? That's a good text. Our Lord Himself tells us that our Heavenly Father delights in giving us good gifts. I like taking care of my kid. Not perfectly, I'm a sinner. Right? But if she says, Daddy, I'm hungry, I like to give her food. He, our God in the same way, but in a much greater way, delights in giving us good gifts. To speak humanly, God actually enjoys helping us. He enjoys giving us what we need. He actually likes to come to our aid and bless us. Brothers and sisters, maybe this third point is the one that we doubt the most. At least I know this is for me. The one that I doubt the most. Maybe I'm not the only one. If you are in Christ, know this, please. God loves you. One of the most simple truths of Christianity that I think we're so quick to forget. God loves you. And because he has brought you into his family, right, Ephesians 1, he has adopted you through Christ. He loves to help you. He loves to help you. This is a, a, a sentence I read in a commentary this week that stuck with me. Brothers and sisters, did you know that your God is not stingy with you? He's not. That You, you don't have to beg him. To help you? What child has to beg their earthly father for help if the father is even remotely righteous? You don't have to beg. He's not stingy. And surely none of us would say that we love our earthly children more than God loves his spiritual children. That's blasphemy if you think you love your kids more than God loves you. Christian, your father loves you. Have faith in God. Believe his loving character. Believe that his heart is warm toward you. Don't doubt this. Your father delights in loving and helping you according to his will. Brothers and sisters, have faith in God. Our God is able. Our God is wise. Our God is good and generous toward us. There is nothing that he cannot do for us. And there is no good thing that he will withhold from us. And now our Lord tells us in verse 23 what faith in God can accomplish. So have faith in God. Then he says this, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Our Lord here uses a figure of speech. I hope you can see that. This is clearly hyperbole. He is making an exaggerated statement in order to make a point that we're going to remember. Right? And just real quick, just a quick note here. Keep this in your mind. Uh, nobody in the history of humanity has ever literally moved a mountain through faith and prayer. It's never happened. Just want to let you all know that. Never happened. I think the Catholics claim through like their corrupt church tradition that maybe someone did it, but like everyone would have known. Uh, and it's the first time I ever heard about it was this week in a commentary. But anyway, that's beside the point. No one's ever done this. No one's ever done this. The apostles never did it. Do you think it's weird Jesus never did it? Jesus never moved a mountain through faith. Literally. Never, never, never did it. If anyone was going to do it, it would have been him. 
No Old Testament prophet ever did it, right? So this is clearly a figure of speech. Just wanted to throw that out there. Figure of speech. Casting a mountain into the sea or removing a mountain uh, was, was something that Jesus liked to say sometimes. And it simply means that the impossible becomes possible through faith in God. It is impossible for you to move a mountain out of the way. Right? Not possible. What seems humanly impossible, an obstacle or need that is in your way, and there seems to be no human way to resolve or remove that difficulty, what seems impossible can actually be done through faith in God. That's the point of verse 23. God is able. That's what's being highlighted here. He's able to do whatever we ask according to his will. Please hear me. There is nothing that cannot be done. Why? Because there is nothing that our God cannot do. There's nothing that cannot be done because there is nothing that he cannot do. According to Jesus in this verse, all we need to do is believe it and it will be done for us. And he says, there can be no doubting. That's a tall order. There can be no doubting. He's saying we must be absolutely certain that God is able, wise, willing, and generous to do it. We must believe with no doubt and God will do what we ask of him. We must have faith in him and he will act on our behalf. Now a quick note here, and I can see it on some of your faces. I anticipated this. Some of us think that this is kind of cheesy sounding. Nothing's impossible. If you just believe, anything can be done. Some of us think that that's kind of, it's okay to admit it. I mean, you're wrong. Right? But it's okay to admit it. I think some of us think that this is cheesy because so many of us have overreacted to the charismatic movement. And we've overreacted to the abuses of these verses. And listen to me. We should reject, like, heartily. We should reject the errors of those false teachers, as I've shown you already. But that does not mean that this verse is not true. It is true. Our God is truly able to do anything that we ask of Him according to His will. There is nothing that cannot be done. And we are to access the power of God through faith. We are to believe in Him, have faith in Him, and then watch Him do what we have requested. That's the point here. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Let's get real for a minute. Do you pray like this? Do you pray like, as if like nothing is too wild for you to ask the Lord to do according to his will? Do you actually pray like this? Do you, do you really expect God to do what you're asking him to do? How often do we ask the Lord for help and we're like, and you know deep down, I'm only asking, you tell me to pray and cast my cares upon you, but like, I don't think you'll really do it. I'm guilty of a lot of those prayers. I'm only telling you because it's my obligation, but he's not going to do anything here. Blasphemy. That's awful that we would do that, and yet we're all guilty of it. Do you really believe that he can? Do you believe that he hears you and delights to help you? Do you believe that he will glorify himself by helping you? Jesus says here we must believe and not doubt. Right, Doubting the power or willingness of God to help us when we pray is an insult to his majesty and fatherhood. And with such insulting doubt, we can hardly expect him to do anything. Do not doubt, but believe. God is able. Mountains can be moved through faith in God. 
And now we come to our Lord's application of this teaching about what faith in God can do. Verse 24. Here's his application. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. In light of what he just said about God's ability to move mountains and our free access to God's power through faith, Jesus tells us how to pray. The heart posture we should have in prayer. And he tells us that whatever we ask in faith will be done for us. Let me break this down into two pieces. First, this is really basic. Jesus tells us whatever you ask in prayer. What does that mean? Well, as Charles Spurgeon highlighted, uh, this means you have to ask. <laughs> whatever you ask, there's something for you to do here. So often we do not have God's help because we do not ask for him to help us. What did James tell us? James chapter 4, verse 2. You have not because you ask not. And so often we, we don't ask simply because we don't believe. We never say it out loud, but we don't believe. We don't believe that he cares. We don't believe that he's able, right? The task seems too huge. We never say it out loud that we don't think he can do it, but we don't. And so we don't ask. We don't ask because we don't believe or because we don't believe that our father loves us enough to actually help us. It's unbelief. Hear me, just, just some things here. We lack spiritual strength so often because we don't ask for it. We have no success in evangelism because we're not asking for God's help. We, and check this one, we find ourselves caught in habitual sin because we do not ask for sanctification. You want to know how I know you should ask, by the way, that God would make you holy? Paul tells the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Pray for it. There's no need for you to be stuck in habitual sin. I'm not saying it'll be a light switch and you'll never commit that sin again. Read Romans 7. It's not what I'm saying. But pray in faith. It's God's will that we would be holy. Pray for it. So often we find ourselves cold in our hearts toward the Lord. Why? Because we don't ask Him to warm us. We have a hard time praying for very long because we don't ask Him to help us pray. We don't see revivals happening in our land, and I mean a biblical revival, not we're going to set up a tent for five days and pretend that we can tell the Holy Ghost what to do. But maybe we don't see real revivals in our day because we don't pray for them. When's the last time you prayed that God would move across this nation and save people in droves like he did in the 1700s? Maybe we don't have godly leaders because we don't ask for them. Because we've put our hope in horses and chariots and princes instead of the Lord our God and said, God, I know that you can put a Christian in there. Help us. We have not because we ask not. So our Lord reminds us that we are to ask. We are to pray. And we must make our requests according to the will of God. Second, Jesus tells us that we must believe that you have received it. And it will be yours. That is, we must pray in faith. We must pray according to the will of God, convinced that he will do what he has commanded us to pray for. Hear me. When we have clear warrant from the word of God to pray for something, we are not permitted to doubt. You're not allowed to not believe that God will answer the prayers that he has commanded us to pray. Right? And when I say he's commanded us to pray, I mean by explicit statement or necessary inference. To believe that God won't do what he's told us to pray for 
is lunacy. Right? Of course he's going to do it. Of course he will come to our aid. Of course he will remove the mountain. How do I know this? He promised to do it, and he's not a liar. Of course he'll do what he commands us to pray for. So pray with no doubt. And so we are to be confident that he'll do it. And, and Jesus is telling us here that we are to consider it already done. Believe that you've received it. I think this is something like the prophetic past tense that we read, where like Isaiah will speak of something in the future, but it's past tense, it's already done. Jesus is saying, pray like that. It's already done. Believe like that. We may not have it now, but it will be done. In some way, at some point, somehow, God will do it. He will answer our prayers. And just real quick, some of you are wondering, let me just tell you on the front end, I don't know. I don't know how. I just, I just don't. Jesus doesn't tell me how God's going to do it. He just tells me that he will. I don't know how God's going to answer our prayers. I don't know when. I don't know by what means. But I do know that it'll be done because the Lord said so. And that's good enough. And I don't mean and that's good enough for me. I mean that's good enough, period. That is objectively good enough for you to believe. Jesus said it. And our only job left is to ask and believe. Brothers and sisters, perish the thought that we would make a request of God according to his word and not be convinced that he'll do it. If we doubt him, how can we expect him to answer us? This doesn't make sense. And so at the command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we are to believe and God will surely do it because he's faithful. Now, in light of these things, let me make three brief applications of the text. Uh, first, brothers and sisters, let us be quick to go to prayer then. And let us be believing in our prayers. Search the word of God. We must know the scriptures then if we're going to pray rightly. Search the word of God and see what he would have you pray for. And then pray for those things with all faith. Confident that he'll do it. Don't delay in going to prayer. Pray every day. Pray without ceasing. And pray for those things that please the Lord. And remember, we often have not because we ask not when we ask, so often we do not believe that God is willing or good or powerful enough to do what we've requested. And so we must put all of that away according to Christ in this text. And we must pray according to God's will and we must pray in faith. Let us be quick to go to prayer. Second, we see clearly in the text, again, in, I've beat this drum all day. Uh, we see clearly in the text that we are to pray how we're to pray when we have warrant from God's word. But what about when we don't know if something's God's will? Right, because this is a good portion of our prayers, isn't it? It's okay to admit it. Like, this is a good portion of my prayers. We pray that God would heal people. We pray for the salvation of our children. We pray for the salvation of our loved ones and our friends. We pray uh, that an addict we know would get clean. We pray that God would help us to get a good job. We pray, if you're single, that God would give you a spouse. Right, that God would grow this particular congregation. I pray that all the time. But we don't have clear warrant in the word of God that he's going to do any of those things. You just don't. Right? There's, no, there's no verse or implication. God's going to save Jeff that lives two doors down from me. You don't know that. You don't. So how do we pray about that kind of stuff? I think this text actually gives us some instructions about this. Uh, first, have faith in God. We are to believe that God is able when we pray for these things. Second, we are to pray believing that God really might do what we've asked him to do. 
right? I don't know why you're asking God to do something, by the way, if you don't think he might. That's just rank unbelief. I'm just going to pay lip service here. God, would you save Jeff that lives two doors down? Like, I don't think you will. Like, why are you praying? We must believe that he might actually do it. That's why we're asking. And third, we submit our request to his will because that's ultimately what we want to be done. And God will certainly answer that prayer in one way or another because he will do his will and he will do what is best. And so we are to have faith in God. We're to trust him. So we pray, Lord, here is my request. I believe you can do it. I believe that you're my loving father. And so you may well do what I'm asking. And that's why I'm asking. But since I don't know your will in this matter, I humbly submit my request to you. Let your will be done, not mine, but yours. We pray, God, I believe with no doubts that you will do what is best, even if it's not what I wanted. So conform me to your will. I believe you'll do it. We believe that he can, we believe that he might, and then we submit it all to our Father who knows best and will do good for his children and glorify his holy name. Third and lastly, and I I must say this before I close, and again, I'm not doubting whether anyone here is converted, but all of this teaching about faith and prayer presupposes that God is your Father, doesn't it? This text is not about justification, but it presupposes that you are in a right relationship to God through Christ. In other words, Jesus' teaching here about faith and prayer presupposes that you're a believer. That you've been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. His His teaching here is founded upon saving faith. It's this justifying faith that I spoke of earlier. So hear me. If you have not come to know that you're a sinner deserving of the damnation of God, then this teaching is not for you. If you have not come to the end of yourself and cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, then this teaching is not for you. If you're not trusting that Christ in his life, death, and resurrection has taken your sins away, then this is not for you. You must come to God first through faith in Christ, or he is not your father. And if he is not your father, then you have no right to believe that he will hear or help you. And so you must acknowledge your sin. And you must believe that Christ died to suffer God's wrath for your sin and was raised on the third day to save you. Apart from faith in Christ, you cannot expect anything from God but eternal wrath and damnation. Let me put it to you this way. If Christ is not your Savior, God is not your Father. So come to Him in faith. Believe upon Him. Believe upon Him and then cry out with the rest of us, Father, I am yours through Christ. Help me. And he'll do it. In closing, may God save his people. And may God teach each one of us to trust him more and to cry out to him more and more in prayer. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us and challenges us. Lord, it may sound funny to my ears but but I pray that you would help us to pray God we're that weak we're that weak that we have to pray that you would help us to pray 
But God, it is your will, clearly in your word, from the lips of our Lord, that you desire us to pray, and you desire us to pray in faith. And so, with that confidence from your word, I ask that you would help us to pray in faith according to your will. With no doubts, believing that you will do what we have requested. I believe. And at the same time, I pray that you would help our unbelief and grant us greater faith that we might make bold requests according to your word and then sit back and watch you do it in one way or another. Have mercy on us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.